are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in the church. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing, and then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Folks, take a seat. Um, We are going to look at the Bible passage in just a second. Um, Pathfinders, um, you're sticking around just for a little bit longer. um, and We'll look at this together, and then you're going to head out, and I'll send you out um, in just um, a bit. Um, And um, I hope you guys are doing well. It's good to be with you. Um, uh, It is is Christmas movie season. Uh, I don't know if you know this. Bonfire night is gone. Uh, This is when Christmas movies start in earnest. They are even on the BBC this year. Um, Christmas movies, if you've never been introduced to them, they have a, they have a kind of a way of uh, working. There's a kind of code almost. There are things that you often see if you've spent any time enjoying them. Uh, I've got a picture of uh, one of them here. one of the things that you'll discover about them is there is a there is a, normally a heroine, a, a main character. There is then the, uh, the the character of the boyfriend from the big city, who is usually the wrong guy for her. The boyfriend from the big city. How do you know he's the wrong guy? Well, um, he is always on his phone. Um, this is one of the reasons you know he's the wrong guy. He's here. He's the guy on the right. As you look at it, he is the the, the guy. He's uh, he's always on his phone. He's never really properly listening to her. Um, and so when they're out for dinner, he's busy doing work things on his phone, which always makes me, you know, worry about how much I'm on my phone. But crucially, he is all about status. So in these movies, if you come across them, he's all about status. He's all, he's kind of fixated on, uh, getting the next promotion. And perhaps it's the next big deal that he's going to do or the next big life stage that uh, he thinks that they are going to, to do together. Or he's going to make partner. It's a big feature of this. And these are the sort of little clues that you get that he's clearly not the right guy for her. But the clincher is, the clincher is that he is always looking down on others. And if you know these stories well, they often involve going back to a small town somewhere And when you go back to the small town, at some point, the boyfriend from the big city will appear and he will look down on these lowly, humble, small town folk. And it's a big indication that he's definitely not the right person for our heroine in the film. Now, why am I telling you this? Other than if you enjoy Christmas movies this season, I I encourage you. Uh, But uh, the Corinthians had exactly this kind of problem. This is what we've seen. We've been, we're coming to an end. We've looked at this over the past few weeks. This was their problem, that they were, they were looking down on others, and they were all about status. That has been the problem that we've seen over these weeks, and it's kind of captured in the, the first point that we've got, the, the, the phrase that Paul uses about them, that they are puffed up. 
They are puffed up. It's a great phrase of Paul's. He says, um, they're puffed up being a follower of one leader over against another. This is how, this is the problem all along. They loved status. They loved style. They loved the kind of particular leader that they thought was the best and was their particular style and they were, um, they wanted to follow and they loved sort of being associated with them. They loved being able to claim that they were part of that group or that tribe. And he calls them puffed up as though they are overinflated. They've got an overinflated view of themselves. Um, and he's pretty sarcastic in this opening half, the way he talks to them. Verse 8, he says, already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. You can, you can translate it. You think you already have everything you need. You think you're already rich. You think you've arrived. He doesn't necessarily mean that they've got material wealth, but they think they are important. If you've ever come across somebody like that, they think that they are important. They think they've arrived. And verse 10 is some contrast that Paul makes, lays it out for them. Uh, he, again, it's kind of so sarcastic tone. We're fools for Christ. You're so wise in Christ. We're weak. You are strong. You're honored. We're dishonored. They want to be seen as wise, following the latest thought leader. They want to be, you know, we're the trendy ones. We're at the edge. Uh, they want to be seen as strong or impressive, that their group, their uh, way of uh, being is, uh, is, is one that others would want to follow. They loved respect, status. And this is what we've seen through the course of this. It's been an interesting series to look at, hasn't it? It's thinking about how, how groups organize themselves, find a leader that they want to follow, and then identify with them. And as Paul goes on, if you get a chance to read later in the letter... He'll talk about how much spiritual gifts has played a part in this, that they form their groups because some of them think, well, we've got these spiritual gifts and therefore we are better than you. So they made these distinctions and divisions. And what Paul is trying to do here is he is trying to take some air out of their overinflated, puffed-up egos. He's trying to puncture them a bit and take some air out of it. And he asks three questions in verse 7, which are really helpful diagnostic questions, if you like. They're good ones. I, would, I encourage you to take them away and ponder them later. They're who, what, and why. Who makes you so superior? What do you have that isn't a gift? Why do you act as if you're self-made? Those three questions in, in verse 7. Who, what, why? In essence, he's saying, look, when you look at your life and where you are and where you've come from and, and what you have, how much of that is really down to you? How much of it actually is just a gift from God? happens to be where you were born, happens to be the life, the hand that you were dealt. Some of you are very fortunate, he says. And it happens to be what you were given. And yet you make it seem as though you're self-made. You make it seem as though it's something you've conjured up in yourselves. But why do you act that way? It's just a gift from God. And they're quite interesting questions to ponder and reflect on in our own circumstances. We'll be in different situations here. But... But not only does he want to kind of bring them down a peg or two and puncture their, uh, their inflated um, egos, there is something deeper he's got to address. And it's just as we kind of come to the end of this series, something he's trying to tackle. And it's in verse 6 because he says, you won't then be puffed up in being a follower of one over against the other. Because the thing that's going on that's a bit deeper than this that he has to tackle is that for the Corinthians to be on top meant you had to push others down. It wasn't enough just to be in your group. You had to be clear that other groups were worse than you. 
And so he addresses this, this idea that you, in being puffed up of one against the other. Um, I came across a, a, quite a recent article by a psychologist, Scott um, Kaufman, who was talking about how groups work. It was um, uh, a psychologist writing The Atlantic um, and talking about how groups work and the mindset they have and how studies have shown. He has this phrase, there is a collective narcissism. So narcissism, where you're, you're very focused on yourself, but a collective one, where a group forms a, an identity and then is focused on that, uh, maintaining that, and he says the studies have shown that in, in one of the ways that that happens is that groups then get focused on the outsiders, the others, and they determine who they are by saying we are better than them. The kind of group mindset. It's not enough just to be in the group. You've got to have some others that you do down in order to establish and shore up your identity. Now, we'll come back to that idea in just a minute. So that's what he's setting up. They are puffed up. They are um, uh, inflated. Um, Paul, by way of contrast, says about the apostles, we are humble and hard up. We're humble and hard up. And he challenges them. It's partly a mindset, a humility. It's also the reality of his life, uh, that they're hard up. And he talks about the apostles, and he has a, a picture of them basically being at the other end of the food chain. So if the uh, the Corinthians were all about status and kind of wanted to crown themselves as royalty. Uh, what's the opposite of the food chain? In the first century, you're a prisoner being taken off to die. So for Paul and the apostles, it's like they are, they're put on display, that they're into the procession, procession of people who are going to be led to an arena to be killed and executed. And that's the contrast. The Corinthians are all about thinking they're royalty and first class. And he says, this is really what it's like for us as apostles. And he lists the things which um, Ewan uh, um, uh, pictured for us earlier. Um, so verse uh, um, 11, uh, to this very hour we go hungry and thirsty, we're in rags, we're brutally treated, we're homeless, we work hard with our own hands, we're cursed, we're persecuted, we're slandered, we become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world. And really what he's trying to get at is what... What are your, what are your, my, what are their expectations of being a Christian? What are our expectations of what it actually is like to be a Christian? Paul is saying, do you realize that being a Christian is to follow the way of Jesus, the way of the cross, a, a, a savior who came to earth and was crucified for us, and our expectations of what the Christian life are like? He says, I expect to have low status, not high status. I expect to, to actually be thought of uh, in, a, in a lowly way, not, I'm not expected to be thought of highly by others. I expect, he says, to be poorer than others I know. I expect that not everyone in the world is going to accept who I am as being a Christian. I expect that I may have to give up status in the course of being a Christian. Now, these aren't easy things to hear, but he's saying, look, do you grasp we follow a crucified saviour. We follow the way of the cross. He says, the, the apostles, this is what we expect the Christian life to be like. And you expect it to be royalty and first class and lovely. And it's not that. But, he says, but. I don't think he's just doing it kind of, because it's quite challenging to hear, isn't it? I don't think he's just saying it to say, you know, uh, to make them feel bad. He's saying, but. If you know that, if you know you follow a crucified saviour, if you know you follow the way of the cross, actually, do you know, it will free you up 
It will free you. It will free you from no longer having to put others down to get your sense of status. Do you know you follow a crucified saviour? You won't any longer. You won't, you won't have to look at other groups and decide that you're better than them to get your status. It will free you from that. And he gives himself as an example here in the way he responds to those who uh, attack them and come at them. So in verses 12 and 13, do you notice as, as it was read, he says, when we're cursed, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure. When we're slandered, we answer kindly. I'm not so invested in my group that I have to retaliate and do them down. Actually, I can respond with grace and kindness. I've been freed from having to do that. This is what Christianity brings, says Paul. It brings a freedom, a sense of, a sense of security in God, a sense of security in Christ, in who I am. That means I don't have to do these things to make sure I know where I am in the pecking order. I've been freed from that by a saviour who came and died for me. The Atlantic article that I mentioned has an interesting twist, talking about this group uh, mentality, psychologists saying the kind of group mentality that so often has to look at other groups and know that they are worse than, than I am to get a sense of identity. The twist, they said, studies have shown that actually, although you might, a sense of being a, a group like that, that they're all sort of arrogant and very proud, it's actually studies show that often individuals in those groups have a fragile, uncertain sense of self-worth. And actually, those, when you're in that kind of group mindset, actually there's a fragility in it. People actually are much more uncertain of their place in the world, despite what they are trying to do. And Paul is saying, do you know, in Christ, in a, with a crucified Savior, that will free you from having to do that. You can find an identity in him that is so secure, you don't need to do that anymore. They are puffed up. It's actually not as secure a place as you think. Paul says, we are humble and hard up, but there is a freedom in it. So what? What do we do? What do we take from this? We're kind of reaching the end of this series. I would love you to reflect on perhaps you know, what has been valuable. What have you thought of? What have you uh, pondered over these past weeks? What will you take from it? I think I want to leave us with this thought and a, a question a, a bit later. This thought, um, as we kind of bring things together, that a Christian doesn't have to be superior. A Christian doesn't have to be superior. It's not how the Christian faith is wired and meant to be. Um, I think it's at the heart of what we've seen over these past weeks as he's talked uh, to the Corinthians. And I think particularly for religious groups, that sense of the outsiders or the other can often, it can be like a drug. That for religious groups, sometimes you form a group and then actually the sense of what you're against is like an addiction, a drug. You can't let go of it. You, have to, you can only define who you are by what you're against. Um, and actually, I think in what Paul's trying to say here, he's saying, look, can you... Uh, he's not trying to sort of beat them up. He says, I'm not writing this to shame you. I think he's trying to say, look, can you see the mindset you've adopted, perhaps without realizing it, that you're so against someone else when uh, uh, you got caught up in that? And I think it speaks... I said, I guess at points over the series, I've tried to say, I think this speaks of something about the Christian world today. 
reflecting on ourselves and, and the evangelical world. Um, historian um, Kristen Coves Dumea uh, has written a book which um, uh, I've read recently and um, reflecting on the situation in the US uh, and the evangelical church there. And, and she, she mentions uh, the church Mars Hill, which I've talked about at points as an example. Um, and, and a line that she has, which really stands in summary for her argument about the situation in the U.S. as a whole, she describes that particular church and says it thrived on manufacturing a sense of threat posed by outsiders. It thrived on manufacturing a sense of threat posed by, outsi- out, posed by outsiders. And it's a mindset that's uh, a group can get trapped in. We're not content until we know what we are against, who the enemy is. And it's just trying to unpick that. I think what Paul has to say in, in these early chapters of, of Corinthians is trying to unpick that. How have we got there? Why have we found ourselves in this place where we need to be superior? But perhaps at a, a, a more kind of personal level, less, less kind of global, national, if you feel like, well, I don't really feel like I'm having to take on the whole Christian world, thanks, Paul. Um, just individually, even, even for us, you know, there are some pathfinders here, uh, platforms. Maybe, you know, you're, uh, you go along to Christian Union at school, maybe you're a part of that. Is that a good thing to do? Yes, it's a great thing to do, um, and I'd really encourage you. Is it, um, is it sometimes something that we use, then we think, well, I'm then better than those who don't go? Uh, to the Christian Union. That's the kind of mindset that we can sometimes fall into. Well, I go, so I'm great, and they don't, so they're not. Or for grown-ups. There are lots of Christian conferences around. Um, And are they a good thing? Yes, they are. I think they're largely theologically neutral, as far as I can tell. Um, I don't think the Bible tells us that we should go to them, but it can be a very helpful thing. But are they a way in which Christians uh, down the years have sort of organized themselves and then use them to look down on others? Definitely. We go to this conference, and you don't. Or we go to this one, it's better than that one. And we take something which is largely neutral, and we turn it into something where we are superior to others. I wonder how much of this is just our culture and our background assumptions of just how things are done, and we've just turned those into, well, they're better than you. So I want to leave us with this question as we kind of bring this series to an end and would encourage you to take away and ponder it. Who do we look down on and why? Who do we look down on and why? There's a question to take away and ponder. Who do we look down on and why? Some of us will have felt that we are on the end of that as well. Those who felt, well, I have felt inferior as a Christian. I have felt somehow that I'm second class. I haven't had these things or I've not been a part of that. I don't know why that is, but I've just sensed it. And to be aware of those. Who do we look down on and why? Well, we are nearly um, at the end. It is Christmas movie season. I began with it. The boyfriend, uh, who's the wrong guy, you know it's because he's all about status and he's all about looking down on others. And, you know, he turns up and he's, he's very superior. But I kid you not, in Christmas movies, um, there is a hero uh, who meets the heroine and the hero is normally from the small town. And in this instance, it's the guy on the left. He's normally from the small town, and he lives a very humble life, ordinarily. And often it turns out that very quietly, on the side, he's been sacrificing himself 
for family or the townspeople or whatever it might be in some way. And actually, it turns out these movies are onto something. You know, this, the hero has often got a, a just a something that he's he's been living this humble, often quieter, poorer, simpler life than the big status-seeking boyfriend from the city. And it's one of those little clues that he's the right guy for the heroine. And as you step back, and if I can use that, if, I'm, if I can use that as an example, as you go into this Christmas season, um, if you step back and you think about the Bible's message, we have a saviour, a crucified saviour, Jesus, who stepped into our world and he responded to our humanity, not by kind of standing there and being superior to it, but saying, I will become one of you. In fact, I'll lay down my life for you. I'll serve you. And in fact, he goes to the cross and he dies for the very tribes, the very people, the very humanity who wanted to reject him and were trying to be superior to him. And he said, I will die for you. Isn't that remarkable? That's the God that we serve. That's the Lord Jesus that we have. And he was so secure in himself, in his identity, in God, that he was able to offer that to you and to me. And if we can sense that, see that, savor that, I think it will begin to free us from that superiority which clutches hold of us.